The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Please visit the Good Grief page at Voice America to be in touch with me, to share your own stories, and let me know people you'd like to hear on the show, and just let me know anything, anything that's affected you as you've been listening. Today, my guest is Elaine Mansfield. Elaine's book, Leaning into Love, A Spiritual Journey Through Grief, was published by Larson Publications in October 2014. Elaine writes from a spiritual perspective that reflects over 40 years as a student of philosophy, Buddhism, Jungian psychology, mythology, and meditation. Elaine gave a TEDx talk called Good Grief, What I Learned from Loss, aren't we on the same page, (laughs) on November 8, 2014, with TEDx Chemung River in Corning Museum of Glass in Corning, New York. After a career as a health counselor and writer, Elaine's work has focused on bereavement and loss since her husband's death in 2008. Elaine facilitates bereavement support groups at Hospicare and Palliative Care Services in Ithaca, New York, and writes for the Hospicare newsletter and website. She also writes a weekly blog about the adventures and lessons of life and loss, leads workshops and lectures on bereavement topics. Her articles have been published in The Healing Muse, print journal and online, Open to Hope, Shambhala Sunspace, Kirsty TV, Caring.com, Alzheimer's.net, Grief Healing, and Elephant Journal. Elaine and her husband, Vic, became students of the Dalai Lama on his first visit to the United States in 1979. Six weeks before Vic's death, he taught with the Dalai Lama in a science and religion colloquium, and the Dalai Lama wrote an introduction for Vic's last book, Tibetan Buddhism and Modern Physics, Towards a Union of Love and Knowledge. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you. So nice to be here. I'm happy to have you. And I and I want to start by saying I think of all the many, many books I've read about grief, especially since I started doing this show, yours most evoked my own experience with my wife. Um, maybe because the, the interweaving of the spiritual ex- exploration and the exploration of her illness and death were so woven together for us, and I got that feeling with your book as well. Good. <laughs> that's, that's what I wanted, and I think our spiritual 
journey throughout his uh, throughout his illness, and then afterward for me was one of experimentation, trying to figure out just what helped. And and how much was that new territory, and how much was it really based on the meditation and the learning that you had done previous to cancer? Oh, it was, it was extremely. Uh, extremely related to everything that we'd done since 1967. Um, so it, it wasn't that there was a big change, but it's, it's just that when you're in those kind of crisis situations, sometimes things are offered. Uh, a new meditation, for example, was offered to us, uh, by a Buddhist teacher and, uh, and, you know, it's not something we'd done before, but we, it was a medicine Buddha meditation done kind of a, a freestyle, and we tried it, and it was wonderful for us, and we were doing that together. So, so things like that, uh, new things happened, and we tried new things. That was interesting to me because my practice, uh, my spiritual investigations really took a tremendous leap forward during my wife's illness. I, I wasn't doing anything regularly before that. And so I was very interested to read that you came with that. And then it, it kind of went either, I guess, both went further and also what you were already doing, I imagined deepened it's sort of like you're dealing with the biggest questions um it it deepens everything yes yeah yeah it was um it was wonderful to feel that we had a foundation on the other hand when you get a uh, an incurable cancer diagnosis uh you don't feel that you have any foundation at all you know, it's like, it's like everything gets thrown out the window. But then we started, you know, piecing together what, uh, how, how we were going to respond. And, um, and, you know, I, I felt that I did have a huge, uh, amount of support from all the work we'd done before. And also from the help of people throughout that two years while he was ill. Yes, you seem very, very, very blessed in both family and community. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes that makes a huge difference in my experience. Uh, too. I, I've been part of the same uh, community since the 1960s. Also, when when we met our first uh, teacher, and um, and it's a very uh, you know it's an interesting community because. Uh, he was not interested. He was interested in meditation. He was interested in vegetarianism, and he was inter- he was interested in all world philosophies. And so it was a very broad. We had a very broad kind of training, and he was very interested in Jungian psychology, and felt that all his hippie students needed to understand some psychology. <laughs> One of the first things we studied was was uh, Carl Jung. So. It was an interesting thing to have a teacher such as that who gave us such a broad perspective and uh, and was so open to every tradition. Yeah, just kind of 10,000 ways to kneel and kiss the ground, huh? I have just, you heard I'm that sorry, expression before? <laughs> it's one that sticks in my head. But I also appreciated that you um, were willing to share... What I guess I began to call reading the book "Unholy Moments," down and yeah. dirty moments um, that you yeah. just cannot be um, enlightened every minute going through such an experience. 
Um, I, and well, I wondered if... I, if I, I, partly from that young, young Ian background, um, I, I'm a true believer that we all, we all have a shadow and we're not always functioning from our highest place. I mean, from a, some broad sense, we might be always functioning from our highest place, but as human beings, we're not always functioning that way. And I kept journals and wrote down, especially when I was disturbed by my own behavior and responses or, you know, when, I, when things were hard for me, I did a lot of writing. So then when I went back to uh, look at those things, I, it was hard to idealize uh, myself too much. I'd love for the the listeners to hear that section of the book, which which ends with an example of that, but starts with um, kind of the more um, the interview with the Dalai Lama. I I love those two being together, and it's it's rather your pieces are rather long, but I don't want to cut them because I think they're they're of a piece. So would you share that the one that starts uh, talking with our friend Steve? Okay. Our, our friend Steve reminds me of a two-minute YouTube clip of the Dalai Lama speaking at Colgate six weeks before Vic's death, followed by an interview of Vic. After avoiding this video for months, I watch it five times. Vic appears composed, although he held back tears with a quivering chin and tight jaw. He was swollen and obviously ill. In the last few years, I've gone from being the healthiest man I know to being the sickest, he explained to the interviewer. But the thing that gave me the most strength and encouragement is what the Dalai Lama spoke of today, genuine concern for other people. Not to say I can do it all that well, but I see the virtue of it. I see the life-saving value of it. Human kindness, this is going back to me, that was the end of a quote from Vic. Human kindness, it all comes down to that. I stood at Vic's side that day, not part of the video, but next to him, watching over him, proud, exhausted, but grateful we'd made it to that day so Vic could see his holiness. It's easy to idealize the dead. When I criticize anything about Vic, I feel I betray him since he's no longer here to defend himself. In the last month, he didn't defend himself anyway. He'd lost his mental clarity and ability to meditate, so he focused on kindness. Part of this lofty path was to accept blame. How crazy that made me when I wanted to argue and blow off steam. Truth is, Vic was magnificent in his dying but I tend to forget that I was equally magnificent. I put aside my two-year complaint that he took up too much space, laughing with him that he finally succeeded in his unconscious desire to be the complete focus of our life together. <laughs> like a sick child, he needed constant attention. Usually I could provide that, although sometimes I had nothing left to give. One October night in 2007, we got an 8 o'clock call from Michael Eisman, who is our um, uh, internist, suggesting that Vic take a diuretic to see if it would reverse his alarming swelling. Because Vic was too ill to drive, it was up to me to make the hour-long round trip to Ithaca and pick up the medicine. 
immediately since the pharmacy closed at 9. I don't want a drug. It's like, can't you see I'm exhausted? I'll ride with you, Vic offered. I don't want to be with you and your symptoms. I shot back at him, shocked by the words that that had escaped from my mouth. I'm not a good person. I'm not even a nice person. I cried as I ran out of the door to the car. You have been an angel to me, Vic called after me. I turned and faced him. I'm not an aimed angel. I'm just a weak bitch who's breaking under the load. I'll get your medicine. You stay here because I can't be nice right now. I don't want to say more mean things. I collected myself during the trip. And when I returned home, Vic waited at the door, ready to hold me in forgiving arms. Recalling that day, I forgive myself. I was so I was so moved to read the last line because so many people hold those moment moments against themselves and to be able to um forgive ourselves for being human in very trying circumstance I think is such a blessing. Well, I wasn't uh I was lucky. I didn't lose it a lot and Vic was an extremely uh easy patient because because he took on this practice of kindness he made it easy to be kind to him mm. and I mean he really was serious about it and I felt that although he never became a formal Buddhist he was a Buddhist scholar and taught a course on Tibet for 25 years and I felt in those two years when he was ill that he truly became the Dalai Lama student in the sense that the Dalai Lama says my religion is kindness And I felt that Vic really took that on, and it made it easy for everybody. And uh, but it didn't didn't mean he didn't lose it sometimes too, (laughs) you know. Uh, Yeah, for sure. We we are in these bodies trying to trying to live from moment to moment, for sure. Yeah. Well, it it reminded me of uh, you know when my my wife was sick, we had a teenager and a uh, in her final uh, few years uh, baby. And uh, every time we had popcorn, I would refuse to share. <laughs> it was kind of my one holdout. No, I won't share my popcorn. And, and everyone laughed a lot at me, but I, I still don't share my popcorn. I never went back to sharing popcorn. <laughs> this is where I hold the line. <laughs> That's where I hold the line at popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. My, my wife now, my second wife and I, we ordered two at the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Our kids think we're nuts, but it, it makes for a lot of peace. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but those things, our human frailties become endearing, I think, unless, unless all we can see are, are those human frailties. But in the context of a beautiful relationship and a, and a good job at dealing with someone going through illness and death, then I find that, you know, our, our frailties are the places where we do hold the line or where we think about ourselves, like, you know, what about me? I can't take anymore. And then you do take more. Um, yes. Yeah. It, but it make, yeah. <laughs> not, not going too far over into resentment, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Popcorn's yeah. a nice, harmless way to hold the yeah. line. Or when, when, we got, when we got grumpy with each other, we could sit down and kind of, 
and just kind of breathe together and get it, get through it. Um, but I, it's such a high, as you know, it's such a terrible high pressure situation. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to keep, it's hard to keep one's center all the time. For sure. Did you ever yeah. feel, did you ever, since you were part of a um, spiritually oriented community, as, as we were as well, I'd say, did you ever feel pressure to kind of be better than you were? Or did people accept your humanness pretty well, uh, the people around you? Uh, no, I didn't feel pressure to be better than I was. I, I felt a huge amount of support. And, um, as I said, this whole community of people also, they have a good psychological sense. They don't expect, we don't expect each other to be, uh, you know, perfect uh, or anything like that. And, but besides, those moments when I was, when, those moments when I might lose it or, or, you know, tell Vic I didn't want to be with him because uh, I couldn't be nice to him. Uh, those were moments usually when we were alone. It was not something that anybody else even saw. But mm-hmm. I, and I may not have remembered them if I hadn't written down what was going on every day. So, so you might have later kind of idealized the experience yourself if you hadn't kept a record, huh? I think so. It's very easy. I, I realized that in looking back. As I, I wrote stories, and then I went back and read my journals and very carefully. And I went, oh, wow, did that happen? Did I do that? Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it, was a very good, it was a very good thing to have those written records. And, and at the time, it was extremely helpful in dealing with my grief or the feeling that I couldn't take things, that I could just write, write things like crazy, just keep writing things down, or even, even write arguments with myself, you know, uh-huh. take both sides, the part, I've had it, no, you've got to keep going, no, I've had it, you know, so <laughs> it, was, it was very helpful to me to do that. I, I, I did other things. I didn't so much write, which is a little bit of a regret at this point, but I know that that's true for many people that they just feel compelled to write. In that, in grief, I could, I felt compelled to sing and dig in the dirt, but not so much yeah. to write. But no. I think we all, we all find our things, don't we? That that we need. Yeah, and for me, I think writing worked too because uh, you know, often the times when I felt the, I was doing a lot of other things too. I was recording all my dreams and painting and mm-hmm. various other things. But my journal, I could take with me anywhere. Um, so in the, in the emergency room in the middle of the night, uh, uh, I could, I had my journal with me. Yeah. Let's take a break here and we'll talk more when we get back. Listeners, you can get in touch with me on my host page, page, goodgriefatvoiceamerica.com. And to be in touch with Elaine Mansfield, go to elainemansfield.com. We'll be right back. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, 
Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm Cheryl Jones, and my guest today is Elaine Mansfield, author of Leaning Into Love, about the death of her husband, Vic, and her own grieving. Uh, one thing I, I noticed uh, that was really clear to me throughout the book, and, and the excerpt in the first segment is a great example, um, that your geography had a big impact, that because you live in the country, it was quite a long ways to anything Vic needed. But then yeah. I, also, I, I also felt that in some way your land was kind of your biggest support in that experience. None of our excerpts um, are quite about your relationship together to your land, but um, I wondered if you could talk a little about that because it was so, it was almost as if. Um, the land was a third, uh, you know, there was you, there was Vic and the land uh, yeah. in the book. It, it really seemed um, so, so large to me. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> the red true. oak, I saw it in my mind as I was reading. Uh, Vic was you... brought up in a housing project as a kid, and he, but it was sort of on the edge of land, and he always wanted land. And when we saw this house in 1973, or 72, I guess it was, we saw this land. This this place was a complete dump. And I mean dump. It was tar paper on the outside, 200-year-old house that was on the edge of falling over. But he saw the possibilities of our land, and 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 we were both completely convinced by the amazing sunset we saw when we looked at the land. And I saw an amazing sunset here tonight, and it's one reason I'm still here. And um, and so the land was something that we, uh, you know, we cleaned old cars out of the forest. It, it's like we retrieved this place, 
And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of land, and uh, and it now has a conservation easement on it, so no one will ever develop it. And uh, so we love this. We love this place. It was very, very obvious in the book, and also very obvious just um, how stressful it was at moments to. Uh, I, you know, I have a good friend in Ithaca. I know, and she and she's been dealing with cancer, and she's been going to Rochester also. So I know that trip uh-huh. just from talking with her. Um, and that must have been, especially when he was really struggling, a very hard trip to make so much. Yeah, our uh, oncologist called me about a month after Vic died. And which was very nice of him, and we talked on the phone about an hour. And then I sent him, uh, and he, he talked about the difficulty of, you know, being far away from the hospital. And because Vic would have these crises. And then, um, and then I sent him my book. And what he said, he, he was very grateful, and he wrote me a letter and said, it was really so important for me to read about the struggles people have when they come to a big cancer center and they have to travel to get here and have to find a place to stay when they get here and that sort of thing. And so I I thought it was great that he read it and he had his team read it so that they also, the medical staff has a better feeling for what it's like to, uh, to be doing that commuting, which looks pretty easy if you're sitting in your office and people are coming to you. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that that um, uh, that does remind me of the the section that we're uh, not reading today, but really stood out to me about kindness. That yeah. uh, that um, you know, when you open your experience to medical professionals, they get informed to be kinder and more present with the people that they're caring for, don't you think? I think so, and I think we have, I think we make a big impression when we're willing to treat our doctors in a, just a straightforward, honest way, when we're not, you know, cowed by them, we don't think they're gods, or we don't think anything like that, where they're just, they're human beings trying to help us. And if when we're honest about about our feelings about things and our struggles, I I thought it was a very helpful to our doctor that we had that kind of he said it was that we had that kind of relationship with him that it was transformed the way he works with people too. So that was great. Yeah. Well, my my wife died in 1995, and uh, I I am pretty convinced that. Ho- very few of the healthcare workers she had had ever um, taken care of a member of a lesbian couple. Ah, uh, yeah. So that was a big education as well. Uh, right. You know, we we had to train them to to um, take me seriously. You know. Yeah. Um, and and um, pay attention to us as a family when they weren't so used to doing that. And I, and I always uh, appreciated that they were willing to learn. Yeah. And, and, um, but it is sometimes hard when you're sick or when your loved one's sick to step over that, that line. It's such a vulnerable uh, place to be. I think sometimes people just kind of don't say anything. 
I, I know some people in my groups have said they're afraid to say things to their doctors because they're afraid they'll get somehow medically punished. Yeah. So well, I, the, the man who ended up being Vic's full-time doctor the last year, Vic had really, he was Vic's doctor in, during the stem cell transplant. Vic really confronted him once for not taking Vic's, uh, some, an idea Vic had seriously and for not considering, considering Vic's feelings. So before we ever had like this guy as the primary doctor for a whole year, there was a confrontation maybe a little small, uh, a little large because Vic's not, he wasn't aggressive with him, but he really told him, you ma- you're making me feel like you're not considering my feelings, and I-, I think it's inappropriate. I'm locked in this place, and I need you to be there for me. And and it was, and he and the doctor apologized, and and it it I think it deepened our relationship because Vic dared to say something, and I and I think people are afraid. So, but it usually does. Uh, in my experience, turn out well, and if it doesn't, sometimes it means that's just not a good fit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that it's worth changing doctors if you have that that opportunity. I agree. I agree. I'd I'd like to um, take a little bit of a turn and talk about when Vic died, and I wonder if you could start that out by reading um, that section. Uh, of your book, the very first, the very he, first pages. Yeah, he's conscious. The nurse says is the first. Yes. Okay. This is a bit of a long section, but I hope it won't be dull. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't dull. think it will be. <laughs> no, so, uh, this, this is uh, this is a section that people re- talk to me about a lot. So here's the way it begins. It's the way my book begins. He's conscious. The nurse says. I trust this Vietnam vet with his acne-scarred face and tender, resigned heart. His sad eyes help me face what's coming. The two of us stand next to a bed in the oncology unit of Strong Hospital and look over Vic's body. He can hear you, the nurse says, but he's too exhausted to respond. You can squeeze him. You can ask him to squeeze your hand. Yes, I could ask Rick to squeeze my hand if he loves me, but I don't doubt his love. I can ask him to squeeze if he hears me, but he doesn't need to hear me. He needs to die. So I don't call him back to life and to me, but let him stay with the hard labor of breathing. I touch him and inhale his scent, rub oil into his hands and feet, and pray for strength to let him go. I've walked with him to the threshold of death and hung my feet over the ledge. I feel the vastness of the abyss, but can go no further. For two years, I've tried to save him. We've both tried, but there are no more escape routes. After years of struggle, his gentle passage opens my heart and stills my mind. This quiet death is his last gift to me, even as I weep and whisper my goodbyes. Just after midnight, he exhales. I wait for an inhalation that does not come. I don't know how to live without this man. I depend on his brown eyes beaming at me. 
For 42 years, we lived to get, we loved each other, meditated together, transformed our land, raised our sons, and shared our dreams and sorrows. I don't know who I am without him. I sit with his body for six hours until an orderly takes him away in a body bag. Then I walk down the dark hospital corridor toward the elevator, my shoulder leaning into my son, Anthony. We're followed by four friends who stayed with Vic and me at the hospital the last three days. I'm exhausted and numb, but also relieved. I don't have to watch his suffering anymore. Now I begin to deal with my own. We take the elevator down and walk toward the hospital lobby, shading our eyes from the sun glaring through the floor-to-ceiling windows. People scurry, grasping coffee cups, pushing to punch in before 7 a.m. They're serious and self-absorbed, their eyes averted. They're behind a glass wall in another world on the side of the living. I stand on a threshold where death feels closer than life. We find my Subaru in the parking garage and stack fixed clothes and laptop on the back seat. Lingering, we stand in a helpless clump softened by the mystery of death we just witnessed. It's not enough to hug and thank these generous friends for accompanying me on this journey, but it's all I have to give. Are you okay to drive, my son Anthony asks. Yes, I answer. Follow me. I steer down the parking garage ramp, driving slowly so Anthony can catch up in his rental car. I stop at the parking attendant's glass-windowed booth. My body knows how to count the money and pay the parking fee. Isn't there a discount if the person you brought here has been left behind in the morgue? It's a ghoulish private joke the young parking lot attendant won't get. I'm a stranger, just returned from the underworld. I've seen death raw and unstoppable and understand that my own death is not a distant thing. My body knows how to navigate this world, knows the way to the airport where Anthony returned his car. I grip the steering wheel, feeling both sharply awake and vaguely disembodied. Outside the rental car return, I move into the passenger seat and let the June sun bathe me with warmth. Anthony drives toward home in the slow lane of the New York State Thruway. We travel over the foreign soil of this world strangers to the usual concerns of the day. I love the way that captures uh, moving out of that, I, I guess I want to say sacred death place and trying to interact with the regular world. Yeah. I do I do remember that feeling. Well, I've I've had it recently too with the death of my mother. You know, yeah. there's there's such a fugue feeling about it. Um, it's, uh, I remember sort of feeling as if if I stayed in that death place, I was okay uh, yeah. on some level. I, I really felt in that place for quite a long time, but I could I could still function in the world. But it felt like I felt like saying in the grocery store. I wanted to say, don't you know that? 
we're mortal. <laughs> How come you're getting upset because you can't get the right kind of oranges? <laughs> yes. You know, it, it, it's, it felt so, uh, like such a strong, uh, teaching to know, to know how close we are to the other side. Just a breath away. Yeah. I always remember going to the grocery store the first time and buying food. <laughs> it was, you know, like it was, a, I think the, the day after he died or maybe the day he died. And I, and I remember so looking at all this, all the food and thinking, oh, we're going to keep eating here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Amazing. Did, did you right yeah. away, did you feel you had the same uh, appetite or did, was food a little strange too? In the beginning, did I have an appetite, were you asking? Yes, yes. Well, uh, not so much for a while, uh, but I, I did, uh, and my kids were around, and, you know, fam- family came, and, and, uh, and, you know, people wanted to eat, and uh, we were planting a garden. My sons wanted to plant the garden. I kept saying, who's going to eat all this food? They said, you can <laughs> give it away. <laughs> they said, it'll be a good summer to give food away, and it was. Uh, but you know, it felt there was this sense of life continuing on, and I think partly for me it was from having these young men in their thirties, so full of vitality, and uh, the way they, the way my family always handles stuff is to, was, or handles hard times is to take on a project. So they were, you know, doing a lot of things around the property, and then they'd, you know, they'd want to have food. So that food was around, and I. I wasn't so interested in it, and I'm still not. I never have get, regained my interest in cooking. I must say. Mm. <laughs> so, and so, uh, perhaps cooking is something uh, that's associated with uh, something you do for other people, or what do you think has diminished your interest? Well, it was just I. I cooked for both for Vic and me mostly, and and I or cooked for family before that. And I think I still, I mean, I still make soups for myself. I still make salads for myself. I, I eat well. I'm a nutritionist uh, uh-huh. by training. And so, uh, so I, I do still eat well, but I just, I don't have that, uh, that much interest in, in, you know, creating new things or doing new kinds of foods. I, I it just, it does, it's just not where my energy is anymore. It feels like it's not. Uh, well, my life alone has a different feeling than that. So, uh huh. In my case, my wife was the cook in the family, and when she died, I suddenly developed an interest. Uh, <laughs> but I, but I did witness my mother lose lose her interest in cooking entirely after my father died. Yeah. So I think uh, when you've been with someone for a long, long time, that's a very common experience. But I still had young kids at home when she died. So we yeah. did need to keep eating. <laughs> well, my son, my sons were only home. They were home for about a week. And then, and then they arranged for one of them because one lives in California and one lives in North Carolina and I live in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So they arranged for one of them to be here for about, four or five days every month. So every other month, one of them would come for a while for about maybe the first year and a half, something like that. And that was a big help. And it did, it did keep me cooking. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> um, 
It's time it's time for our second break. And listeners, take the time to email or contact me through any of my social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google+. Be sure to look at my Pinterest page, too, where you can find a lot of my guests and other resources. And you can email me from my host page. You can find Elaine Mansfield at elainemansfield.com. Be back in a moment. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief with our guest today, Elaine Mansfield. And we're talking about her book, Leaning, Leaning Into Love. And Elaine, during the break, we were talking a little bit about um, ritual and its place in grief. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, because I know that that's a particular focus of yours and something you, you, uh, uh, something your TED Talk was about, for one thing. I really appreciated listening to your TED Talk um, you know, the part of it that had to do with ritual. Yeah, and that's one reason I, uh, one reason I brought it up. The, um, doing a TEDx talk, uh, is a, is quite a journey of finding, well, you've got, they're going to give you 18 minutes or maybe less. And what are you going to say? What do you want to say? So it was an interesting evolution that took about six months. Uh, and I realized more and more that what I wanted to say and what felt uniquely important to me was how one can create rituals for themselves at any time and that the rituals usually provided by our culture, like funerals, happen right after a death, usually, or soon after. For me, it was about four or five days after Nick's death because everybody was there. So and they, every, they were kind of, they wanted to do it. So we went for it. But I was, I was just almost in a state of shock or just 
exhaustion or whatever. And so I needed to keep creating rituals for myself uh, throughout throughout uh, the whole uh, year or two years, and I still do. I, I still take flowers to the place where his ashes are in the woods, and I still uh, I do simple things, and I realize just having the intention, something small, have, taking a flower from the house, uh, this time of year, it's cold here, taking a flower, walking out to the woods, putting it there, uh, it, it's very quieting and very calming, and when I felt like I couldn't take things, and I felt overwhelmed, it always helps me a lot to do something simple like that. Mm. So I, I like people to know. I like to share with people. You know, try things. And put you know, put a photograph and see what happens. Put a flower there and and see what you feel like putting there with that with that photograph of the person you love. I've actually used that too very often with people that I work with who have a. a, a for instance, if their parent died when they were a kid and no one wanted to deal with it, sometimes just making a place for that person in your house helps to bring you back to that grief and help you go through it instead of um, leaving it murky. So I yeah. think there's there's no timeline on that on that uh, the importance of ritual for people and and. Um, how much it can do to help. And in, in, the, um, uh, in the TEDx talk, as you'll remember, I would begin by talking about how my family handled death, which was to try to, you know, try to, the way people did in the 50s. Mm. Uh, when my father was dying, they just tried to pretend it wasn't happening for the kids to try to protect the kids. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, you feel this great sense of doom uh, in your world, and you don't know what the cause is, really, and it's very mysterious and upsetting. And then after my father died, my mom didn't want to cry, so she didn't want to talk about it. So I think it's one reason I do want to talk about it, and I do want to find ways to uh, always, I want to do rituals with my, with my sons, and and I want to talk about my husband with them. I don't want I don't want to, like, pretend this didn't happen to all of us because it's still a huge deal for all of us. For sure. I, I, was, I was very captivated in the book by the differences between you and your sons about how much you wanted to talk about it um, because yeah. I found that with my, my own kids, too. They're, they're kind of, um, especially now that, you know, I'm doing this show, I'm meeting uh, uh, you know, someone who has important things to say about grief every week, and yeah. my whole my whole family will say, "Could we quit with the death stuff now?" You know, <laughs> kind of, yeah. yeah, they need they don't want well, to talk about it. I still want to talk about it, but I also I do have to be I have to be careful. You know, I have to be I have to kind of let them lead the way. And I thought that my friend, who um, I said I this is part you know in the book I, I said. I called my friend after a discussion with my sons where they said, Mom, we've had enough. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. You know, we made it through Christmas. Let's, we, we, we don't want to do it. We don't want to talk about this anymore. So uh, this was a few years after my husband died. And my friend said, uh, or a year and a half after, and my friend said, they're, they're young and they're on the side of life where they should be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought that was a very wise response. 
absolutely. Um, yeah. And and not uh it's not the same at least with my kids I find it's not the same avoidance kind of thing that uh you describe, you know, in the 50s and is familiar to me from many descriptions of of that that time and death and my own parents and death at an earlier time. It, yeah. It it's not the same. They're they're realistic and they're willing to talk just they're living somewhere else yeah they're living somewhere else and for both my sons they were they're both extremely close to their dad but at the same time they didn't live with him and it's a very different I mean I lost my dad when I was 14 It's, it's a very different experience to lose a parent all these experiences are different and and my sons are you know they're two independent guys and they need their own way. They don't, I mean, when I, I just went to my sons in North Carolina for Christmas and they, he and his wife, we did it. We had a solstice ritual and Vic's photograph was front and center. You know, we, uh, it's not like we leave him out, but I, I need to, I try to let them lead the way a little bit. Yeah. I, I did wonder what it's, you know, since you have, it, it at least appears from the book, a life that includes a lot of solitude. Um, how was that with grief? I mean, I found I needed solitude, but I also definitely needed a lot of company. And uh, I wondered what it was like living, you know, on um, in the country and grieving. Did that affect things for you and how? Well, that was another interesting point when I, when I looked back from a later perspective, I felt like I was alone all the time. But I look back because I have my old calendars, you know, I kept them for tax purposes and looking, you know, and various other things. So I had my old calendars and really almost every day I saw somebody for a long time. Either a friend came over and took a walk with me, or I met with someone for lunch, or or I had, and it was all there on my calendar. Um, I mean, I felt alone because I was still alone twenty two hours a day, you know. Right. But, but uh, and and Vic wasn't here, but I also needed a lot of time alone. Uh, some people need more extroversion, and I needed. I needed to be alone a lot. It felt the very best thing. And in the beginning, I went out to a couple of music things and uh, kind of gathering, different gatherings. And it, it it wasn't the right thing for me to be doing. I need I needed to be uh, I needed to be quiet and be alone. So, and I needed to walk in my woods three times a day. So <laughs> that's what I did. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that and that kind of intersects too with your. Uh, previous work being a nutritionist and being a um, health educator that you had that pretty integrated into your life too being physical walking you know yeah um, yeah so yeah that that stood you in good stead it seems uh, some of my uh, I also was a weightlifter and so was Vic uh, for you know, uh, uh, we did serious weightlifting, but it was very health oriented, and uh, um, so in other words, we're not like taking steroids and getting huge muscles or something like that. <laughs> but, but but we were very interested in being fit, and that has been hard for me to keep going on my own, even though I didn't lift weights with him. 
but it, it requires a certain will uh, that I have had a little harder time mustering on my own. Walking and keeping aerobically fit is, is a lot easier for me. I do, I do keep going, the weightlifting going, but it's, it's not nearly as much fun as it used to be. Uh-huh. Well, so. I, I find even now with my wife, we kind of um, spur each other on to do certain parts of health, our healthy routines. Uh, and it's and it's harder if one of us has one that the other one doesn't do. It's a little yeah. bit harder to generate. So I think that that um, right. couples and do we compare notes and, and sure when we went when we went traveling. You know, we'd go look for a gym and go to a gym together uh, and just have and just be silly. It was just you know we were it was really fun for us. It was very fun for us in about two thousand. We we both really wanted to get. Uh, wanted to start weightlifting and uh, that's a whole story in itself but it was we had a lot of fun and it was great because we stopped talking about our kids and started talking about our training (laughs) (laughs) Elaine I'd like to end with that final segment of your of your book we have just uh, a few minutes left and I think that's a wonderful way to end our time together to read this last section yes okay So this is the very end of the book. Vic still visits in dreams, but with less intensity now. Inwardly, he is always with me, in some ways more strongly than just after his death. Now he is a constant heart presence. He is my inner husband, as long as my attachment doesn't stop me from living, and it doesn't. Instead, his closeness makes me live with more courage, joy, and curiosity. I once apologized for my continuing relationship with Vic, since our culture thinks those who grieve should move on and get over it. But my bond with Vic is a gift. I build my new life on the supportive foundation that we created and the person I became during our life together. Of course, I long to watch for bluebirds with Vic and hold his warm hand in the woods rather than leaving flowers at the place where his ashes are buried. But I've grown and changed in ways that wouldn't have happened if he were still alive. I'm more self-confident and get less upset about the small stuff. My daily spiritual practice continues to be meditation, kindness, and the search for beauty and love wherever I find it. I do not forget how fragile this life is. I don't make excuses when I'm afraid of the next step. And instead of supporting Vic's writing career, I support my own creative work. The beauty of our land still heals and comforts me. I occasionally go to dream workshops or visit spiritual teachers. But solitude is my most powerful teacher and the forest is my sanctuary. I'm not ready to leave here. I keep the trails cleared, field mowed, and firewood on the porch because Vic hired Matt Hoff to help us before he died. Matt and his wife and daughters are part of my large circle of support. Matt calls me his land steward. I joke that I must be the duchess. Grief doesn't end for me or anyone. If we dare to love, then we will grieve. Mortality is the shadow that falls when the sun shines. Life doesn't stop reminding me. My mother-in-law falls. My friend's son dies for no known reason. 
after a hard battle with cancer, the wife of another friend dies, and I have more friends with grave illnesses. I hold them in their struggles just as they held me. I make soup and phone calls and reserve a space in my heart for those who grieve. I weep, but not as much for myself and Vic. I weep for the suffering of those I love and for the struggling earth, for the beauty of a golden sunset or whitecaps rippling across Seneca Lake. Vic's death taught me that only kindness and love matter in the end. When we fall, and we all will fall, we can rise up if we lean into each other and the sacred gift of life. May we all learn to lean into love. Thank you, Elaine. It's been lovely to be with you. And listeners, you can find Elaine at ElaineMansfield.com. Next week, join me when I welcome Catherine Ingram, whose book, Washing the Bones, is a memoir about the loss of her husband of seven months and her father and how she healed. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.